Hello, and welcome to the TV Movie Rewind Podcast with Matt and Todd. Hello. Today, for our spooky Halloween movie marathon, we are doing the 1943 vampire movie, Return of the Vampire. This is an old school monster movie from the 40s, obviously, and... It's not a universal picture. It's a Columbia picture. It was their attempt to compete with the universal monsters that were just a huge box office success. It really saved universal pictures in the in the 1930s when they decided to go ahead and make Frankenstein and Dracula and all their famous monster movies. So this was uh, Columbia Pictures' attempt to get a piece of that pie. And they brought in Bella Lugosi to be their vampire, Dr. Armand Tesla. Yep. Now, apparently, and, you know, when you read these things off of IMDb or Wikipedia, you got to, you know, take your chances with their their accuracy. But Sure. I mean, this movie is 1943, so. Usually when I see it on IMDb as well, it's it's, it's got a more of a ring of truth to it. And it seems that Columbia really intended to make a sequel to Universal's 1931 Dracula. And you can definitely see that in the structure of this. Well, I mean, technically, technically, if they don't advertise it uh, as that, I mean, there was nothing keeping them from having Bela Lugosi play a character named Dracula because Dracula was in the public domain at the time. Yeah, but not for film rights, as I understood it. The book, well, but not the film. Right, but if they're doing a sequel, which is technically... Oh, fair enough. Original... I see what you're saying. I see the character itself. I got you. Yeah, yeah if they're doing technically what is an original story with a wink and a nudge to it being a right. sequel. Got you. And and technically, you know, even, even then, I mean, I'm sure they secured the rights to it, but the Dracula that... that Universal filmed in 1931 was really just a version of the stage play that had played for right, geez, hundreds and hundreds of shows. Sure, such a good movie, too. See, now I want to talk about that because one of the reasons I picked Return of the Vampire over, say, Dracula is because at the end of the day, and and it's a classic and it's an important movie, and and Bela Lugosi gives an amazing performance as Dracula. And Dwight Fry is absolutely incredible yeah. as as Renfield in that movie. At the end of the day, I don't think Dracula is a very good movie. Oh, I'm a fan. It's it really I mean the, the beginning is actually the, the beginning parts that take place in Transylvania are the highlight of the movie. But once they get oh, to London yeah. well. It seems like it's just like, okay, we're going to film a live version of Dracula, like it's a stage production. I mean, it's not my favorite iteration of Dracula, but I do like it. No, and, and, and I, I enjoy it as well. But when you compare it to, say, even Frankenstein made the same year as a movie, it's technically very inferior. In fact, at the same time they were filming, Todd Brown was... Todd Brown or Todd Browning? Browning. Todd Browning. You Todd stick together, don't you? Yeah. Well, well he's a 1D, though, guy. He's, um, he's weird. He doesn't have the superfluous D like I do. If well, I remember it's, right. It's Todd. Right, Todd. While he was filming it, using the same sets and the same script, a different director was filming a version in Spanish. Because that's what they did back then. You didn't really just dub over the movie in Spanish. You filmed an entire movie in Spanish with, you know, Spanish-speaking actors and crew. Okay. And that movie filmed at the same time on the same sets with the same script. Basically, at the end of the day, Todd Browning would and the casting crew would leave. And overnight, the Spanish crew would come in. Uh-huh. The Spanish version of Dracula is a far superior movie. Oh, really? Technically oh. superior, atmospherically superior. I I first heard about it back, I think I want to say like 89, 90, maybe 92, when uh, you, at first it was thought to be lost, but Universal found it and put it out on VHS and 
Fangoria did a review on it and said, hey, this movie's actually better than the original 1931 Dracula. And I'm like, how can that be? Blah, blah, blah. And then if you have any of the Dracula legacy collections from Universal that they put out on DVD and Blu-ray, this version is available on that set. And I finally watched it and I was, it is indeed a far superior and more entertaining film. Really? All right. I'll definitely have to watch it. I'm not sure if I ever did, because this story actually does sound familiar. Like, I must have known about it at some point, but uh, I, I've completely forgotten it. Um, and I definitely want to check that out, because I, I you know, I think Dracula is a great story. I think it's an excellent book. Um, I really enjoy the, um, you know, the the, the stage plays. Um, I'd like to see it again live. I just, I don't know. I, I just, I really like the way the book is written. Um and I've enjoyed most of the Dracula iterations of that of that story. Um, my favorite, if I had to pick one, well, this isn't about Dracula technically, but my favorite, I guess we might as well just finish this thought. Well, you know, we'll get to that when we do a Dracula episode. I'll forget it. Well, I was um, going to say, have you watched the uh, 1977 BBV, BBC version that's currently streaming on Prime? Not yet, no, but you told me about that. And I definitely want to check it out. It's really good, and it's probably the closest to bringing the book to film as anybody ever came. Oh, right on. Like, I've read some great dramatic readings of both the book specifically and then, like, radio plays that are based on the book. And um, I, some of them are really damn good. It's an excellent story to be told and not even necessarily see. The one conceit the movie does is it combines the characters of uh Quincy Morris and Arthur Homewood into one Catherine into one character yeah. Quincy Homewood. Oh right on okay. Other than that <laughs> That's straightforward. Other than that he's an American like uh, he's he's more Quincy Morris than he is Arthur Homewood but um they combine those two and uh Lewis Jordan who we talked about a few weeks ago as Anton Arcane and Swamp Thing plays Dracula. Oh right on. That's really cool. Uh, it's actually called no. It's called Count Dracula. Count Dracula. But it's right. it's um, a BBC did it in 1977. Really good. Highly recommend it. I'll definitely have to check that. So we should probably start talking about the movie we picked. Yes, right. And I mean, this movie starts off right away with a vampire attack during the credits. Yes. Yep. As the credits play, Bella Gosi shows up and and uh, attacks a woman. And it cuts, and, and we're in uh, 1918 London. Yes. And we meet our, well, two heroes for the first part of the movie that play, takes place in 1918. Um, a Professor Saunders and a Lady Jane Ainsley, who are both scientists, and they're studying a blood disease. And I think it's pretty obvious that uh, Saunders was meant to be Van Helsing sure. from uh, Dracula, and they're trying to figure out, you know, what's what's going on. Like, what's the deal with these women who are being attacked? And we've got them in the hospital, and they, they have some sort of anemic illness. And right. we also meet Lady Elaine's son, John, and Professor Saunders' granddaughter, Nikki, Nikki yeah. as children. Uh, obviously the best of friends. And you know what? I'm betting these two are going to grow up to be romantically involved. I'm betting the movie, if the movie were to jump, I don't know, 23 years into the future. For the sake of argument. We would see these two involved. Anyways. And I'm willing to bet that like his whole, um, his whole um, needing to play the piano before he goes to bed is going to pay off somehow. Like he might become some sort of piano virtuoso. For example. But of course, if we go ahead 23 years, we'd be in World War II and you need to, oh, we'll get to that. So anyways, while they're studying and they put the kids to bed, the vampire played by Bela Lugosi, who is just, the fact that he is Hungarian and he has this accent and he's just, he's got this look about him. He's, he, the staring he can do with his eyes, it's almost like he was born to play a vampire. Right. Right, like it's just as well that he it was he who kind of cut the mold because um, he's the perfect he's perfect for it. 
I mean, he played Dracula. I mean, only twice did he ever play Dracula in film. Correct. But he played Dracula hundreds of times on stage. Yes. So he had it down. Right. So he comes in and attacks little Nikki in her bed. And uh, Professor Saunders uh, comes to the conclusion that they were dealing with a vampire. Very quickly. I mean, he reads one book and he's like, that's it, vampire. He convinces... um, at one point, I think he even says, "Like it's the only, it's the only possibility, or something along those lines." It's like, damn, he's quick to, wow, all right. He convinces Lady Elmsley, uh, Amesley, who was going to be our heroine of the movie for the most part, sure. That this they need to seek him out and destroy him. Now, and again, that's why I'm pretty sure this was supposed to be a Van Helsing because he's already into the whole. It's a vampire. Oh, exactly. Like immediately. Again, he reads one book, which has conveniently a picture of um, Armand Tesla. Well, not uh, conveniently. The book was written by Armand Tesla. Well, right. No, I'm saying it has conveniently a picture of him, right? Uh, well, I guess an artist depiction because he's technically 200 years old. And um, he's very quickly like, yeah, this all makes sense. Like, this is obviously the only explanation. I mean, this guy is quick to a lot of stuff because when um, when the patient ultimately dies suddenly, or at least we assume so, because he checks her pulse for all of a second maybe and it's just like yep dead like no well, cpr not even a question he's just like oh yeah well i i checked her wrist he didn't even like check another spot he's just like yeah dead would cpr been a thing in 1918 i i'd like to think so i'd like to think he'd try a little bit harder than like oh this one specific well, spot on her wrist i couldn't get a pulse so that's it i'm done let's get I this checked, out of the way i did check two seconds this movie doesn't waste any time because it doesn't have any time to waste. It's only no. an hour and 10 minutes. Exactly. And that's probably why they had the first attack during the credits. Let's go. Let's roll. Let's move right. it. Let's move it. Come on. Let's. Well, and, and here's another thing. This was directed by Lou Anders. Todd, how many films do you think Lou Anders directed just in 1943, the year this movie came out? All right. Um, I'm trying to think of how to take this because I'm expecting it to be kind of ridiculous. So I'm going to be somewhat aggressive and I'm going to say like eight. Seven. Oh, wow. That is a lot. In his 30 years of directing, he directed over, he directed 176 movies wow. and TV episodes and mostly movies. This guy just, just, it, it, and, and apparently it was probably how he always got his work. It's like, give it to Lou Anders. He'll get it done. He'll yeah. get it done. He'll get it out. Because this was actually, I mean, and, and Bella Lugosi had made Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman this same year. It, it had come out um, probably about eight months previous. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's just, I mean, that was what they did back then. They cranked these things out. And and while the I mean while the movie does look alternately low budget, um, not really though, because like it's not for lack of effort. Like you can see a lot was put into this movie. That's actually pretty impressive. Like I knew it was you know I knew it was low budget. I know it's like you know it's a horror movie from nineteen forty three. But um, and uh, there are certain things like the like the Wolfman's makeup is really good. And every time they go out to that cemetery, it's a creepy atmospheric shoot. Yeah, like they do. I it mean, looks really cool, right? So, I mean, given the circumstances you're describing, you would expect like really low budget, quick effort, like we're one and done. But no, the, the acting in this is solid. The, the The effects are pretty good. Um, it's a pretty ambitious movie for what I assume they didn't have a great deal of time, but hopefully, presumably, sets for you know thousands of other things for. Actually, yeah, that's really impressive. I didn't know that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, all right. So they determine it's a vampire, and they go rushing out to the cemetery because they deduce that you know he's the vampire needs to sleep in his native soil and and be away from people, secretive. So they determine there's two unused, like basically cemeteries that aren't used anymore nearby, and they go check that out. And while they're there, they're track they're they're closing in on Tesla's coffin. And that's when we meet our werewolf character, who isn't your typical werewolf. He's no. he's not a snarling beast man. He's still he's a thrall of the vampire, but he's still you know he can speak. He has control of his actions, and he's quite a dapper dresser. Yes, yes. 
yeah he well yeah he has right he has control of his actions he's more of like a um he's like he like well yeah thrall that's that's a really good word he's, for it. he's a thrall yeah he's he's kind of like he's like he's hesitant because at the end of the day he's kind of a good guy but he's also like he's easy to give in to what um to the dark he's, side as it were. yes he's he's under a, a, so thrall is a, good, yeah. a spell of the vampire and he's basically his guardian and you know during the day and, and all that and as we find out he's a tragic he's married, character yeah. Because he's a very unwilling participant in, you know, the vampire's plans. Right. And I guess I, I guess the posit is that um, either. OK, so, well, I guess let's yeah, let's move on. I'll, I'll ask after it'll make more chronological sense. I think. So the professor, Professor Sonsley, Professor Saunders and Lady Elmsley find the coffin of Armand Tesla open it up and before they ram a stake through their heart, they hold a mirror to him because like, okay, if he's a vampire, he won't cast a reflection. Right. Sure I wonder what enough, the other he... option would have been just like sleeping guy. Guy sleeping in coffin. Well, you know, you never know. Might be a homeless man before we, we, we you know, it, it's, it's smart to check. I guess. People, if you're going to stake a vampire, just take a few moments to check, see if he has a reflection before you ram a stake through his heart. I mean, that's a good plan. So they ram a stake through his heart. And um, just as they're doing it, that, the werewolf, uh, and it's Andreas. Key to, it's key to note, they get a good look at him. Well, Saunders gets a good look at him. I'm not sure how good a look Lady Elmsley gives him. I guess we have to assume not very, based on the following uh, events I of mean, the film. But... They're in a crypt. It's dark. Saunders is the one that opens the coffin. Saunders is the one that holds up the the mirror to reflect to see if he has a, an image, and he's the one that rams a stake through his heart. So it's it's easy to assume that Lady Elm Ainsley just kind of gave it a quick glance and was like, I, I don't want to look at a dead body in a coffin. You say he's a vampire, whatever. Do what you got to do. <laughs> And as they're doing this, the werewolf We've all been is, is Andreas stumbles in and collapses, and he is cured of his um, leucanthropy, for lack of a better term. Okay, and that's that's where I wanted to add. That's that's where I was going with an, a, a moment ago. Like, so my question is, or at least do you? It's not like the movie tells us specifically, right? Which is fine, but I guess in your opinion, at this stage, do you think he is still a werewolf? But it's uh, Dracula that triggers it. Or, sorry, not Dracula. Armand Tesla uh, that triggers it. Or is it Armand Tesla that like makes him a wolf man? Yeah, um, good, good question. Yes, I don't think he's the typical werewolf where he was bit by a werewolf, became a werewolf, and then became a slave of Armand Tesla. I think Tesla either hypnotized him and maybe even gave him some of his own blood so that he wouldn't become a vampire but would become a slave to him and that's where his uh, leucanthropy comes from. Okay. So he's not the werewolf as we most would recognize a werewolf just in the terms of being a slave and not a vampire himself. Got you. So you're saying he's more of like so. Basically, you're you're saying that when when Tesla is down for the count with the railroad spike in him, he's just like normal guy again. He's just normal Andreas, like person, human, totally fine. And it's 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 Dracula that's like making him a wolfman somehow. Yes. Got you. Okay. That's my opinion. Okay. But there's no concrete statement of that within the movie. Right. Like my my. I mean, now granted, like if following wolfman rules even if tesla was down every full moon he would be a wolfman so i was never like to me i wasn't sure if it was something that was just like latent until tesla came along um almost like almost like a monster squad in in that like it didn't seem like all of the monsters really happened unless they all kind of happened at the same like they all made each other happen kind of 
or if not Dracula. Directly. Well, I mean, to, to, to that point, I do believe in Monster Squad, that poor man was just a werewolf, you know, living his tragic life and then was called to that area. Right. Dracula arrived. Right, right. And that's what I was wondering if it was, uh, yeah, something along those lines. Okay. Anyway, uh, and the, the again, uh, going back to, like you had said, like, we don't know how rushed the movie was, but we can infer by seven films that it probably was to some extent, but it doesn't really feel it. Like it feels low budget, but it also feels like horror movie in the forties, low budget. It's just, that's just expected. Uh, but the effects are quite good. And the, and the Wolfman makeup is really good. Do you know anything yes. about that? Like, did they get it from a different Wolfman movie or did they just, did they just kick ass on it? Cause it's, it's excellent actually. Well, I mean, this was 1943, and um, there had already been two Wolfman movies starring Lon Chaney. So I'm sure they just looked at that, went to their makeup department and said, give us something that looks like that, but doesn't look like that so we don't get sued for copyright infringement. I mean, I'd argue it's superior. He definitely looks more wolf-like than... than um, the Wolfman. Yeah, no, the yeah, the Wolfman makeup in this is fantastic. So, nineteen eighteen, they've destroyed the vampire. The movie now cuts to, I'm assuming it's nineteen forty three. That which would, would be twenty five years later. But I think at one point, Armand Tesla states it's been twenty three years. Yeah, twenty three makes more sense. So, nineteen eighteen to forty one. You know, whichever. It's London, 1941, and we learn that recently Professor Saunders has died in a plane crash. The movie was released in 43. Yes. But I'm sure it was also filmed in 1943. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. It was probably filmed like three or four weeks before it was released. It wouldn't surprise me. They filmed probably, probably took, they probably filmed in two to three weeks did some editing and then got it to theaters like a month or so later. Right back. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. If it could be quick that quick back then. Sure. So we learned that professor Saunders has died in a plane crash. So he's out of the movie. We're only about what? 10, 15 minutes in like this whole thing has up until it's just been a setup for the main plot. Yes. Tried to, to give us our Dracula that they wanted this to be a sequel to. And the head of the Scotland Yard has found a journal from Professor Saunders relaying the story, recounting the story about Lady Elaine Amesley and him killing a vampire. And of course, he's like, well, there are no vampires, but we need to go check this out because if I find a body with a spike in and in the cemetery, I'm going to have to charge you with murder. Yeah, Um, I'm not sure what he expected to find 23 years later, but yeah. So she's like, all right, but once we get there, I'm going to be able to prove he's a vampire because the body won't have decomposed any in these 23 years. And you I mean, know, that's, that's it. Like, what are the guy like? Well, again, remember, this is in London. Oh, that's so true. These, yeah. these, these are British people. So it's all like, all right, well, pip, pip, cheerio. We'll get to that as it comes. <laughs> Stay calm and carry on because, you know, the Jerry's are bombing us every 15 minutes. Well, we have it. Uh, speaking of which, yeah, we're about to meet two of the most intensely English. I don't even know if they were like truly English, but I mean, they ramp it up to like thirteen. The two, um, well, the two civil guard guys. First, we meet. Uh, well, we were reintroduced to the adult John and Nikki, who have in fact become a couple. Foreshad- They're now engaged, as properly foreshadowed. John is a famous pianist. <laughs> <laughs> Um, John is a famous pianist who has been honorably discharged from the um, Royal Air Force for wounds received in defending his country. And now he's going to be giving a concert because, again, he's British. And just because he's been shot down several times and discharged from the military doesn't mean he can't perform a concert for his loving public. Exactly. Uh, Nikki is, you know. Like we said, Nikki's now his fiance, and they plan to get married. And you know, um, we meet Andreas, who has been a loyal friend and I don't want to say servant, but assistant to Lady Ainsley in the interceding twenty plus years. 
Yeah, it becomes like they're, they're yeah, they're like an executive slash administrative slash like lab tech kind of thing, yeah. So he's heard about it too, and like I said, and she doesn't explain it to the kids, but, you know, again, that was just expositionary that like kids are getting married, blah, blah, blah. They'll be our young lovers for the movie. And now Lady Elaine has to, Lady Amesley has to deal with the shenanigans of the Scotland Yard accusing of her murder. Well, again, 1940s London, the Blitz is going on. There's a bombing attack. And again, just showing to how the British dealt with the Blitz. Minor inconvenience. On with the show. The graveyard is bombed. And like you said, two civil engineers are sent to go rebury the bodies that have been disinterred by the explosions. And they happen upon the body of Tesla with the spike in it. And they assume, reasonably so, that it happened during the body, the bombing. The body right. was disinterred and it got a piece of shrapnel in it. So they pull the spike out and rebury him. And there is, like you said, they're very British. It's a very, it's a bit of comic relief for the proceedings. They're oh, yeah. kind of a, a comical duo. Right. They're almost like um, offensively, <laughs> they're, they're super English. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know if these were actually English actors because I forget who played them. And I don't know if this was, I mean, this wasn't, was this filmed in England? Do you know? I don't believe I doubt so, it, but right? it, it would have been up, literally honestly. during the war, even released in 43 and filmed earlier. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's like, wow. In case you forgot, like in case you might have forgotten where the movie was supposed to be taking place. So they rebury him. And of course, during that night, Armand Tesla, re, you know, rises from the grave and goes back about to being a vampire. The next day, Head of Scotland Yard brings Lady Amesley to the spot. And she says, yes, this is where we reburied Tesla in this unmarked section. We brought his body out of the crypt where we staked him and buried him here. And the caretaker confirms her story saying, yes, this there was an unmarked grave here that was, has been here since I've been here for 12 years. So that fits. And as they look, they're like, well, obviously a bomb hit near here and there's nothing to investigate. Any evidence that was here is gone, so he drops the case. Back to our lives, people. Well, it turns out Lady Amesley not only is a scientist, but she's part of a network that is helping people escape Nazi Germany. Yes. And she's received word that a famous uh, doctor has been freed from a Nazi prison camp is being brought to London and she sends Andreas to meet him with documentation and pay on all sorts of papers to, you know, get into the car, get into the country. As Andreas is sent to do that, he encounters Tesla who re, I don't know, re wolfs him. He basically, ha unfortunately, falls back under. And it's a tragic because, and, and he's my Whit Bissell award winner, not so much for his acting, but for playing the best character in the movie. It's yeah. It's really a tragic role. As in, not only does he not want to be a werewolf and not want to, he really tries to fight with every fiber of his being not to fall under the thrall of, of Tesla, but Tesla just has control over him. And Tesla sends him to where he's supposed to go. He murders the doctor and the doctor's guide. And then he brings the paper to Tesla so that Tesla can now pretend to be this Dr. Bruckner. And now Tesla will have his revenge on Lady Ainsley. And he even implies that somehow while being dead and in the ground, he caused the plane crash that killed Professor Saunders. Yes. So that just shows that, again, this he's not just a vampire. He has some sort of... Um, he's got powers. Know, yeah. yeah, some sort of sorcery. And that's the thing, because, again, it's explained Cause... that... 
Because the stake doesn't um, kill him, it just like stops him for a while. It puts him on pause. Which is really what in vampire lore is what the the stake is only supposed to do. You're supposed to stake the vampire and then cut off its head and stuff it with wolvesbane, and that's how you really kill it. The stake just demobilizes the vampire. That was our mistake twenty two years ago. No, no, I went back and took care of the rest. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so. Yeah, he's, you know, not only does he have the ability to turn Andreas into a slave and a werewolf, but he can reach from beyond the grave and cause a, a plane crash. So, and like you said, obviously Lady Elaine did not get a really good look at him, but it's also been 23 years and other things have probably been on her mind. So when Tesla shows up claiming yeah, to be Dr. Bruckner... You and I still remember what that guy looked like 23 years ago. You don't just forget the time that you killed a vampire. At this point in the movie, it hasn't even been 23 minutes. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Like, How quickly do you forget what the vampire you you, you, you killed looked like? Even if it was 20-odd 20, 20 years ago, I think you remember that. Like, we remember it. Yeah, but we also had a camera to take a picture. Fair enough. So... He basically doesn't go after Lady Ainsley. He goes after Nikki. Uh, meanwhile, the police are investigating because, of course, he's a vampire and he's attacking women again. Police are investigating that while Lady Ainsley says, nope, Tesla must be back and we have to figure out what's going on. Which is, yeah, I mean, that's that would be the logical conclusion of her um, colleague, uh, the, the late Dr. Saunders, so. And totally to be sense. to be fair, as and much then she as, did kill a vampire. So. Well, not kill, but yeah. As as much as the head of Scotland Yard doesn't buy for one second, there's a vampire running around. He does legitimate police work into investigating what's going on. He doesn't just simply like, oh, poppycock vampire, no such thing. Um, no, he, he's like, well, something's going on. I don't believe it's a vampire for a second, but we got to figure this out. Long story short, it's revealed she, she uh, Lady Elaine figures out that, well, actually, no, the detective figures it out because he had a notebook describing Dr. Bruckner. It's like he's, he's old, he's balding, and he walks with a limp. Whoever this guy telling us is Buckner is obviously isn't his. Lady Elaine, Lady, I keep saying Lady Elaine. Lady Ainsley <laughs> says, uh, Lady Ainsley says, oh no, now I've got it. The guy pretending to be Dr. Buckner is our vampire, Dr. Tesla. Tesla has set up, is, has attacked Nikki and is trying to turn her into a vampire. Andreas has been a double agent against his will, you know, foiling, you know, Lady Lady Ainsley. And at one time, just to kind of show how badass Lady Ainsley is in this 1943 movie, when, when it's all coming to a head, she's playing the piano when Tesla comes in to confront her. That's a really, yeah, this is a really neat scene. And this woman doesn't even blink. No, she doesn't. knows she's got a vampire who's threatening her, who has attacked her son and her son's fiance, and she's just playing the piano and saying, "You know what? You're not going to stop me because good always triumphs over evil." And Tesla's like, "Oh, you you completely underestimate me." And that's when she lowers the the uh, the the guard that goes over the keys and reveals she's had a crucifix sitting there that chases Tesla away. Uh, Tesla kidnaps Nikki with the help of Andreas, and they head back to his crypt with um, Lady Ainsley, the head of Scotland Yard, and his two chief detectives in hot pursuit. They get to the graveyard. The detectives shoot Andreas, but don't kill him. But Tesla is able to escape with Nikki because, unfortunately, as this is going on, the Germans lead another bomb, bombing run. And there's, you know, there's an explosion nearby. Nobody's hurt, but it allows Tesla a chance to escape. And the final confrontation comes down to, and this is what's really kind of cool, is that 
as Tesla is preparing Nikki for her final stage into becoming a vampire in his crypt, Andreas finds a crucifix because they're at the they're in the, the crypt of an old ch- abandoned church, and Andreas finds a crucifix hidden in the dirt, and he picks that up and he's able to purge himself of the evil and turn the tables on Tesla. Yep. Another bomb. Go ahead. No, I was going to say it's, um, there's a lot of imagination to this movie. Yes. Um, a lot of weird playing with, um, with the, uh, the different lores, which I kind of like, like they, they, um, again, it's a very ambitious movie for what it is. It's, it's, um, it's an awful lot of fun. And, um, it's it's a great example for me anyway it's a great example of the the kind of movies of the time um i really like like it just kind of keeps going and there's a you know again the the subplot with andreas as as a really tragic and interesting character um, yeah it's it's i really like this movie another bomb hits they're staggered but they're protected by being basically in the crypt um Andreas drags, now the sun is coming up, so Andreas drags Tesla out into the daylight, stakes him, yep. and then finally succumbs to his injuries and dies himself. And we get a, we, we kind of get a glimpse of Tesla kind of disintegrating or melting in the sun. Which is pretty as, gnarly. As Nikki herself comes up from the crypt and witnesses his destruction. And the, that's when the chief of Scotland Yard and Lady Amesley and the tech detectives arrive on scene as well. And again, we get a last, the movie ends with one last bit of comic relief as, you know, Lady Amesley says, see, there's your proof. You know, he's disintegrated into a skull and there's poor Andreas who, you know, because Nikki informs them that Andreas is the one that destroyed Tesla. Yes. And like, you know, and he's now he's at peace and the evil vampire is destroyed. And the head of Scotland Yard is like, okay, you know, I don't believe any of this. I'm glad everything's settled. I'm glad we got the bad guy, but I don't believe any of this vampire stuff. And he turns to his two detectives like, do you believe in this vampire stuff? And they both, you know, yes, we do. And he, he does a double take and then he looks, breaks the fourth wall, looks directly at the audience and says, do you people? And cracks a <laughs> smile and it comes to an end. Yep. It's a, it's a perfect, like, it's a perfect time capsule of a, of a movie of this time. Just creepy enough, um, just sinister enough, also a little silly, like it kind of knows what it is. And um, it treads all that really well. I mean, I think I, I, at the time, because I know at least when, the first Frankenstein movie came out in 1931. There's an opening sequence when one of the actors, Edward Von Sloan, basically comes out before the movie starts to address the audience and ensure them it's only a movie, folks. Nobody die of a heart attack of the spooky shenanigans that are about to happen. And I think that's kind of why we get some comic relief here is just, you know, oh, we don't want to scare the audience too much. Right. But it's it's a lot of fun, and a lot happens over its one hour and ten minute runtime. Yeah, no, there's a lot of ideas here. Like if this was expanded into a somewhat longer movie with a budget of today and the effects possibilities of today, it could be a really fun story. And I mean, it already is. But whenever they get to the the cemetery sequences, it's really, I mean, literally dripping with atmosphere because there's all sorts of smoke and uneven hills and and dead trees and, and it's really really cool looking yeah they they um I, again i'm surprised i'm surprised to realize just how um how many movies this guy would have made that year seven you said this year in the year this was made yes that's wow um to have that much attention um still to this movie because it doesn't again it's it is you know low budget but it doesn't really feel it in most ways it really doesn't um there's a lot there's a lot of good imagery here it's uh it's a really fun movie it's an excellent it's an excellent it's a good movie um you know if you want to get into like older movies if you want to get into older horror movies from this era this is a good gateway one 
Yes, I, I really think if you if you haven't watched, because I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Universal Monsters. This is actually even like I said, it's a Columbia picture, but it's a good gateway because it's very fast paced, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't well fast paced. It doesn't waste any time, and it gives you kind of that set piece of what these movies are like. Right, it's kind of serious but kind of cheesy at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it, you know they're having fun with it. Right, exactly, exactly. That's the thing they want to show the most is like we're trying, we're not trying to, um, yeah, exa- we're not trying to be gratuitous about it. You know, we're trying to have fun with this. Um, and that which would eventually turn into like you know like you had talked about like the series of um, you know the sequence of events that ultimately lead to the monsters becoming jokes that end up in Scooby Doo before you um, end up with like uh, like you were talking about in the Monster Squad episode. Well, I mean, like I said, even in the Monster Squad episode before we got to that, by the you know the Universal really kind of wrapped up their classic Frankenstein series with the fantastic comedy Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Right. Good point. And that's another reason I picked this because this is a, a movie that offers us two monsters in one movie. Yeah. And like Universal had only just done that in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman earlier this same year where Bella Lugosi played the Frankenstein monster in that movie. Yes. Now, so that's Two double creature movies. Go on. Todd. Yes, sir. Do you remember growing up with Creature Double Feature on WLVI TV 56 out of Boston every Saturday morning slash afternoon from 11 to, it would start at 11 o'clock and And run till 2 o'clock. Was it two o'clock? Oh, yeah, they, like they got three. two. They got two monster movies in a three-hour block, because usually most of these monster movies themselves were a little over an hour long. You get right. the commercials in there. You know, you had a three-hour block. That's where I first encountered, and again, I, I the the show ran until nineteen eighty-three. I thought it ran later. So I can understand you not remember it, remembering it quite as well as being only six or seven when it went off the air. Right. But this is, I mean, this was, again, as in, in our youth, monsters. I was, I didn't like watching horror movies, but I didn't consider monster movies horror movies. No. They were Saturday morning fair, you know. and, and They were more adventurous, yeah. Dale Dorman hosted the show, at least in the period I remember watching it. And, you know, it was fun. There was always a back-to-back monster movies that were, they played the old Universal monster movies. So that's where I first saw them. They played the Hammer monster movies. They did the Japanese giant monster movies. We got to see all the Godzilla and Gamera films. Right. And any other type of sci-fi alien invasion movie. Another one I remember seeing all the time. One of my favorites is The Time Travelers, which ended up being... Uh, Mystery Science Theater, right? Mystery Science Theater. Yeah. It's one of the Netflix episodes. You know, watch that one over and over. I remember seeing my favorite Dracula movie, Dracula Prince of Darkness, for the first time on That's a great one. TV 56. W. I mean, we talk about WLVI 56 a lot because it was our... Yeah. staple for most of the late 70s early 80s we get home from school we turn it on to 56 they'd be running yogi bear bugs bunny all the classic cartoons that would run into brady bunch that would run into taxi that would run into welcome back carter and three's company and then it would be time for us to go to bed pretty much yeah it was um you're right. Like it, it more or less stayed on that um, station for the longest time, at least during those years. Yeah. Uh, eventually, it morphed into like TV 38 with um, uh, movies more from the 70s um, and 60s. But absolutely, no. Uh, TV 56 was pretty much the station. But you know, creature double feature in particular was for our generation and our broadcasting area the creature feature show because every. Everybody in somewhere had this type of show, whether it was called Chiller Theater 
and whether or not it was hosted by, and we still have them today, you know, um, the last one I really remember seeing was Monster Vision hosted by Joe Bob Briggs. Right. And, you know, there's like the Sven Gulli, and then there was the House of Frankenstein, you know, where they would have, you know, we didn't have that on-screen host who was usually, you know, introducing the movies and having little skits. Or, or no. Whatever. I mean, we had like Rhonda Shear and uh, Gilbert Garver. Remember USA Up All Night? USA Up All Night. Yeah. Um, we never had, at least that I recall, because like I, I knew of, say, Elvira, but I don't think we ever had Elvira on our, no, in, not in in our, our time, area. right? Or not in our area. Yeah. So like a lot of the hosts, a lot of like the more famous hosts, which I guess must have been in California and New York, say, um, I'm not super familiar with, but sure, we had our own, yeah. Yeah, we only, we, we had the voice of Dale Dorman, who was a DJ on um, 108 FM as well. But, you know, just his voice introducing the show. And he also hosted the, the cartoon block on weekday afternoons as well. And he did that. He did that for quite a while, like after, oh, yeah. after long after um, Creature Double Feature, because I do remember that. I remember him hosting the um, cartoons, if I remember, at least if I remember correctly. But yeah, I want to. I, I kind of want to dedicate this episode to Creature Double Feature from TV Fifty Six, and for all the great memories it, it it gave us. And I know there's other people out there because there's a Facebook page dedicated to it. There's a guy who was even doing like kind of a convention every now and then, the uh, Creature Double Feature Roundup. He, he had done four so far, I, you know, with the way things are going. I don't know if he'll be able to do another one, but, you know, it's just, you know, the, the fun memories of monsters being almost like supervillains as opposed to horror characters. Exactly. Yeah. Like, um, right. I, I agree. They, they, they do end up more like supervillains. Um, and I suppose have maintained some of that to this day. Um, yeah, for me, um, to me, it goes a little bit later with, um, like I said, like the movie loft, you know, I remember the movie loft distinctly, especially for most of my horror movies, but that's, you know, creature double feature, uh, movie loft, um, even just like, you know, the TV movie, whether it be made for TV or it was brought to TV. I mean, that was our Netflix in the eighties. That's just what we had. And at least until we could rent a VCR and then until we got our own VCR, it was whatever we'd have to like check the TV guide or the paper, uh, you know, for the TV listings and be like, Oh, this movie. And at the time, like we didn't really know, or at least I didn't anyway, have the concept of how heavily edited a movie might be. Um, so for a long time, like certain movies, that was just how I saw them. Yes, the movie Loft on TV 38, hosted by Dana Hersey, yep. was where we saw most of our, I would almost say classic, because that's where I first saw Psycho and Same. Flight of the Phoenix and yep. probably Poseidon Adventure. And yeah, he was hosted as well, coming on during com commercial breaks and giving us a bits of trivia about the movie as well. Yep. Yeah, so, you know... Um, I don't want to say it's, I mean, I miss it to a certain extent, but now with today's technology, I don't have to wait for the movie to come on and, you know, yeah. I can look all this stuff up and I can watch it when I want. So like, I, I wouldn't necessarily mind the hosted show experience where you have like breaks of the host telling you stuff in between. Um, but no, it's, it's a lot cleaner just to either have the DVD or yeah, pop up Netflix or, you know, and, uh, Amazon you, or whatever. Yeah, you can have audio commentary running during it, too. Yeah. But there is part of me that misses it. There's a feeling of nostalgia there. Oh, totally. No. Um, even, yeah, again, like even the TV movie event, like you don't even have that anymore. Now it's, it's you know, all four episodes are, if, if, are thrown out on Netflix or Disney Plus or whatever, which, again, not a bad thing. But I remember a time where you would be like, oh, the next the new Stephen King novel is going to be on NBC or whatever it's going to be like you, you, you know, you paid attention to that. I remember when we'd be like, oh, it's that time of year. Wizard of Oz is going to be back yes. on. Yes, there you go. Right. It was, it was actually in the whole contract for whatever, for whatever station had the right to show it, is they could only show it once a year. And it was a big event as a kid. It Absolutely. was almost like. That's how we know, watched it. 
it was almost like a holiday. It's like, okay, Wizard of Oz is coming on, you yep. know, in, in in a couple of nights, and yeah, yeah, there was it was a lot of fun for for yeah for 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 the very first you know. I don't know, 10 or 15 years of our life. That was pretty much just how you saw it. Like, yeah, exactly. You, you made, you made a point to see it. Um, you know, the big, the, the big, whatever, you know, network miniseries was going to come up or the network TV movie was going to come up or, you know, whatever network had the rights to a given movie. It's like, Oh, I can finally see this now. You know, waiting for a commercial break to go to the bathroom because you're going to pause or you exactly. Know, you, wanted to, you wanted to get a soda or something from the fridge. It's like, well, all right. You know, I definitely got time to go grab a soda. Exactly. Every once in a while, that would kind of pay off, you know, because, yeah, exactly. You do when you could go for a break. Yeah. Good stuff. Yep. Nostalgia. Uh, yes. All right. So I already gave my uh, whip whistle to Matt Willis played Andreas. Yes. Um, I would say the same. Like, again, he was the most compelling character of the movie. Like, he was the one I was drawn to the most. Yeah, tragic, interesting character, you know. Absolutely. Whereas Absolutely. most everybody else is pretty much black and white, you know, the stoic heroes and the evil villain, and here he is right in between. Right, like there's a lot to the movie beyond its uh it, beyond its like surface idea because if you know, if you haven't if you're not like a fan um or at least have watched enough of these like older monster movies, you 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 would just assume, you know, you'd make a lot of broad assumptions on on what the movie is, but it's it's it's, you know, it's there's a lot to it here. Like you said, the scene, the scene where um, Ainsley is like standing off more or less with, uh, you know, technically she's sitting playing the piano with Dracula is a really well done scene um, that you wouldn't see. in like, if you think B movie, or if you think like, you know, uh, thrown quickly made or low budget horror movie, you wouldn't expect scenes like this, you know, much less well done. And just even the title, the return of the vampires, pretty lackluster. I'm sure right. it was again meant to be the return of Dracula, but you know, Universal threatened a lawsuit, so they were like, "All right, we'll need that garbage. We'll just yeah, do our own lot. thing." I mean, again, like we said, like it opens with a vampire attack, and it opens with this woman seeing the vampire coming at her, terror in her eyes, and a scream, and then the classic, you know, cape enveloping her, and you know, the the credit troll. Yeah, starts off with a bang. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is a really fun movie. I didn't. I looked to see if it was uh, currently streaming. It. I, I have it on DVD. I, I know you do as well. And yeah, I know there's a, there's actually a, a nice Blu-ray out that I haven't. Um, I know I it's out. Go ahead. I was gonna say I know it's out for rent most places. Um, something called Philo TV, I guess, has it for free. I think. But like it, it is available. Um, it's just if you're if if you're a fan of this genre, you, you're probably better off just buying the DVD. It's worth it, or Blu-ray for that matter. Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure you can rent it on Prime cheap enough. Just if you want to see it. Yeah, it's like the the requisite, like three bucks. Prime, um, Google Play, uh, YouTube, all that. I mean, if you have the five dollar uh, subscription to Peacock. Peacock has a bunch of the classic Universal stuff up there right now. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, that including sense. several of the the Mummy movies and the Frankenstein movies and Son of Dracula. Son of Dracula is my favorite. We discussed this during uh, Swamp Thing. Son of Dracula mm-hmm. is my favorite Universal Dracula movie with Lon Chaney as Dracula, woefully miscast, but everything around him is so well done. I highly recommend it. Uh, so we are doing our movie recommendations at this point. Yeah. Uh, do, uh, do they have um, Peacock? Do they do they have the the Spanish Dracula on there? I looked. I did not see it. Oh. I would have checked that out. Uh, but check out Son of Dracula. Check out Count Dracula, the BBC version. And yeah. I'm just going to put a blanket on. You know, if you have that Peacock. Check out their Universal Monster Collection. There's 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 a lot of fun to be had there. Yeah, exactly. Like I think the recommendations more or less speak for itself. You're you're either into this genre or willing to give it a shot, or you're not. Because um, there's a lot of fun to be had there. There's an awful lot of fun to be had there. And most of these movies are just over an hour long, so you can watch a bunch of them in a short period of time. 
Yeah, exactly. You can do your own. Well, again, double feature. You know, you pop your popcorn, kick back, and yeah, two hours go by, and you've you've just seen two movies, or you know, slightly more than that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, um, uh, yeah, check them out. Yep. Uh, you got any recommendations specifically? Um. Honestly, no. Not that's just nothing. That's not going to just be mentioning, you know, random uh, Universal or at least that era monster movies. So not really. All right. Well, then I guess it's time for me to connect this to uh, the Magnificent Seven. Right on. All right. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Bella Lugosi earlier that same year was in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. Lon Chaney Jr. was also in a movie called a Western called The Indian Fighter with Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas was in a movie called The Light at the End of the World with Yul Brenner, who of course was the lead of the Magnificent Seven. Nice. So done on four. That's actually a lot I guess that's that's a lot easier, a lot simpler than I, I guess I expected. I actually thought I was gonna have some trouble with it too, but as once I remembered, like, oh, Lon Chaney Jr. was in a ton of things. And, you know, he was in a lot of Westerns, often playing the heavy. And one of his um, one of his best roles and one of, the, I think, the roles he enjoyed playing the most was uh, Lenny in a version of, of Mice and Men, where he played opposite uh, Burgess Meredith as as George. And that's what I was originally thinking. is was like, all right, what do I connect Burgess Meredith to? Oh, I bet that's amazing. Yeah, he does a good job in that. Ron Chaney Jr., the the man had his demons, unfortunately, man. That that poor you know, I, you know, he he had a had a huge career in the monster movies and he did so much stuff, but man, yeah, he had he had his troubles. It's unfortunate. Yeah, that is unfortunate. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, he uh, I guess I don't know much about him. He had a battle with alcohol, just like, uh, you know, Bela Lugosi had a tragic end of life, you know, struggling with things. Lon Chaney Jr. was showing up in in terrible movies and, you know, just trying to get the bills paid and struggling with alcoholism. And one of the most infamous things with the poor man was he was playing the Frankenstein monster in a episode of a TV show called Tales of Tomorrow, where they were doing the story of Frankenstein and he was, like I said, playing a monster. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately he showed up to the set drunk and thought he was, do- and there's, there's arguments that whether or not he was drunk, how, how drunk he was or if he was drunk at all. But this was a live performance and unfortunately he thought it was the dress rehearsal. Oh no. So there's scenes where he's supposed to be picking stuff up and smashing it down, but because he thought it was the dress rehearsal, he'd pick it up and look like he was smashing it down and then gently set it back down because, well, we're going to need that for when we film the actual actual thing. Oh, no. Yeah, it's... Oh, that's uh, I, I have um, footage of that on... Oh, the, really? There's a... There's a DVD, I don't know if it's still available. Oh, it was called Tales of Frankenstein. And it's basically just a DVD tribute to all the different Frankenstein movies that were made through the years. Uh-huh. It has trailers of all the different movies. And it has, That's I don't cool. remember if it has the full episode of that or if it just has um, outtakes of it. So when was that? When was that film? The, the Tales, was it Tales of Tomorrow? Yeah, um, that probably would have been the 50s, the oh, okay. 1950s. Oh, okay. Maybe early 60s, I'm not sure. Oh, okay, I, I didn't know if it was something um, somehow more recent than that, because I don't remember when he died. I know his last movie was the very unfortunate... Um, what was it called? Dracula meets Frankenstein. And you, if you remember, that's the Al Adamson one where uh, 
you get the Dracula with the big afro and the laser shooting ring and the echo voice. Oh my god, that's on a mystery science theater or something, I think. But yes, I do remember that. It's a abysmal movie, and he plays an axe wielding maniac working for the. Uh, oh, we saw that. We owned that. I used to have it on VHS. Yeah, I just remembered. That's that's right. Oh my god, that movie is incredible. Yes, 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 and, yes. Yeah, okay. unfortunately, I completely was, forgot about that. That was his last screen performance, unfortunately. I totally and completely for- I don't remember how we ended up with that movie, but I totally completely forgot about that. And yes, I remember you had it on DVD. What was it? Dracula meets Frankenstein? Oh it was, wow! It was it was VHS. VHS, right? I'm sorry. Yeah, and VHS. I, I, I oh, had bought wow. it out of I had bought it out of a dollar bin. That's how we ended up with it. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I totally forgot about that movie, but you're right. Yeah, he had like it was like a Dracula perm going on, and he for he had the laser. Oh wow. Wow, the that Franken- brings back memories. The Frankenstein looked like a Pillsbury Doughboy. Yeah, it was. That was incredibly. I'm gonna have to look up. I'm gonna have to look up that movie again. I completely forgot about it. Do you? St- you don't still have? You couldn't possibly still have that. Oh no, VHS I don't have any of my VHS anymore. Gotcha. That was from the but, 70s, probably. Late 60s, possibly early 70s. Okay. But, you know, I'm just right now looking up at my shelf of all my Mego monster figures. And I got my, you know, Bela Lugosi as Dracula sitting right next to my uh, Lon Chaney as the Wolfman. Do you have uh, Boris Karloff as uh, Frankenstein yet? Boris Karloff as Frankenstein. Um, Elsa Lanchester as Bride of Frankenstein. I even have a Glenn Strange version of the Frankenstein monster. Which movie was he? Glenn Strange played Frankenstein monster in House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. He was actually the tallest of all the actors to have played Frankenstein. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, he was just over six foot six. Um, Oh, wow. uh, Lon Chaney Jr. was next at six four, and then Bela Lugosi at six two. And I think Boris Karloff was under six feet tall, if I'm correct. I I think he was actually, he initiated the role, but I think he was the the shortest of them. Well, didn't he have have to wear like the super tall shoes that he's known for? Well, yeah, they put him in in those those shoes and um, they gave him a, a, a suit that didn't, you know, quite the the uh, jacket that was too short, so it looked like his arms were too long. Well, his arms were too long for it. But yeah, they gave him a costume that uh, you know accentuated his um, his his uh, size. In fact, he even took out Boris Karloff would take out his. Oh yeah, Boris Karloff. He tall. He's five eleven. And he took out a bridge bridge work he had so his cheek would look more sunken in. Oh, well, that's neat. I didn't know. I, I didn't. I did not know that. Yeah, if you if you look, if you ever look at Boris Karloff as the Frankenstein monster, you will see his right cheek kind of sinks in a little. It almost looks like he's um, he's 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 puckering up a bit because he removed the the bridge work he had done to give him more of a sunken look on that side of his face. Well, that's hardcore. Oh, they were all, you know, really, and and it's one of the things that um, the director—I forget who directed—Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. He said that the the guys playing the monsters were all great. They were all into their roles. They were all having a good time. They were, you know, very well behaved. Whereas Abbott and Costello could be a bit difficult. Was that was that a common thing for them? Were they always difficult? I, I I believe at that time Abbott and Costello it was during the period the, the two of them weren't getting along very well so that might have had something to do with it as well but oh, from okay. what I understood during their early career when Abbott and Costello were friends and 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 colleagues that they were much easier to work with. Oh okay. Um do you have for your Mego collection do you have a um 
I'm trying to remember. Do you have a uh, creature of the black from the Black Lagoon? I do indeed have a creature from Black Lagoon. He's I got him in a fishbowl. <laughs> set up behind Dracula. Do Do you remember the actor who played him? Or it? Uh, I know he was a stunt man. I've seen. There's a famous picture of him in the uniform without the head on. I don't recall who played him. So no one to become uh, especially famous, I guess. Unfortunately, or just he was the not, of Black Lagoon. Yeah, not that I can think of. Right on. Okay. But yeah, most of the um, like they pretty much, and that's, and that's that's like one of Lon Chaney's juniors claimed the fame was that not only did he originate the character of the Wolfman, he was the only character to play the Wolfman, whereas. Lugosi, Karloff, Cheney, and Strange all played the monster. Lugosi, Cheney, and Carradine all played Dracula. And Karloff and Cheney and... Oh, I forget who the other guy was, but there was another guy that have all played versions of the mummy. But the only person to ever do the Wolfman was Lon Cheney Jr., is that right? I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. that. I just assumed there was more than one. You know, just given how long it's been. Is it basically because like other iterations have been a werewolf, not necessarily well, the wolf? I man. mean I mean um and I guess Benicio Del Toro obviously I was gonna say, played yeah. the character, you know, about ten years back in the remake, but in the classic universal cycle, he was the only one to do it. I got you. I, but but I mean there have been werewolf movies since I guess just none have reprised the character of Lawrence Talbot, right? Lawrence Talbot, except for uh, oh, interesting. I yes. guess I, 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 yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so like basically the the Universal monsters ran from 1931 to you know about 1944. You know there goes a little longer, like because I think the creature from the Black Lagoon was like 1950s actually. But for the most part, it's it was, you know, 1931 with Dracula and Frankenstein until I want to say 1944 with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, kind of closing it all out. Do, do you have a favorite of these movies? Uh, yes. Um, Probably of the Frankenstein, my favorite is definitely the Frankenstein series of movies. And then I would probably say Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is my favorite of all of them. Um, I also really enjoy House of Dracula, which is, you know, really when it was, it was, it was the last of the serious take on the monsters. Okay. And it's pretty cheesy, but it's a fun monster mash. Bride of Frankenstein is probably the best, like the Godfather 2 of the Universal <laughs> Monster movies. The Empire Strikes Back of the... Yes. And then uh, I, I really enjoy Son of Dracula, despite the miscasting of, um, of, of Lon Chaney as Dracula. Uh, is it because it's just poorly done by him or is it just they should they could have picked someone else uh they should he just um he's not dracula he's not dracula gotcha it just that's really what it is gotcha you know uh i i de niro's a fine actor i don't think he could pull off dracula i mean he could pull off frankenstein i guess all depends on what how you feel about that particular movie. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode, folks. I think we, we've run into a tangent here, and uh, we're going to let you go. Many tangents, as many as this movie attempt, attempted. But uh, we thank you for joining us, and we hope to have you back next time. Thank you very much, everyone. <laughs>